Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Hi guys. Welcome back everybody. We know it's um we're still in these very difficult times. Uh, I think we're two weeks into lockdown here in mm-hmm. the UK, so uh, we're slowly getting used to it. How are you getting on, Bethan? I'm doing okay because not too much has had to change for me, which is quite nice. Um, being on maternity leave anywhere, I haven't had to worry about work, which is such a big kind of concern for most people. Um, but it is very strange. And I think when you're told you can't do something, all of a sudden you kind of want to. I just yeah. want to go out to the pub for lunch and stuff like that, which I wouldn't have done before. So um, it's been odd, but we're still able to go out for our sort of one day's, like one exercise a day, which is nice. So we haven't had to stop doing the baby's walks. So we go for like an hour of walk every day where she naps. So that's quite yeah. nice. How about yeah. you? Because obviously you've had to still do work and stuff, haven't you? Yeah, so I'm working from home now. I've been working mm. from home for a couple of weeks, which is like I love being really sociable in the office and probably mm-hmm. quite disruptive. So you are, um, yep. yeah, of course. <laughs> um, you know me too well. So, um, so I really miss that kind of interaction, and we try and replicate it through things like Zoom and other mm-hmm. video conferences. But it's not the same. It's just not as much fun. Um, and you kind of work much harder at home, I think, which is pretty shit. So, um, <laughs> but, not a lot uh, yeah, we can do. I get it. And yeah, I guess it is it is what it is. Do you sometimes feel a bit guilty as well when you're like, oh, I'm gonna have a lunch break? Like, do you feel a bit like, oh, should I be doing this or I do feel a little bit like that. Not when I take a lunch break, but when I take any other break, I'm always a bit like, Oh god, I should be online and doing stuff. But I know damn well at work I'd have taken multiple breaks yeah, naturally throughout exactly. the day. So um so yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? So we I hope think- you guys are all all doing okay. And thank you to everybody who's kind of reached out and said that we're helping them get through that because we just make this show because we really enjoy it. And then when we hear that we're actually kind of helping people get on with, you know, painting their house or dealing with having to be in lockdown, it's quite, it's quite heartwarming, isn't it? Yeah. And also if anybody's kind of having a bit of a rubbish time, do get in touch and have a chat with us. We're always at the other end of the phone, maybe not immediately, but we're always around and if you want to join the Facebook group there's loads of great chats going on and some ridiculous Joe Exotic memes going around so seen them love them yeah yeah. keep them coming are you watching the tiger thing I've I've not yet I just can't I know that as soon as I watch the first episode I'm committed to it and I'll I just know I'll stay up to like two o'clock in the morning (laughs) binging it so I've purposely tried to not even go there but I will at some point but I've not yet Mm. I'm just wondering if it's going to stint like be as good as the memes seem to make it out to be (laughs) yeah everyone just says it's so weird so I know I'm going to have to watch it I just need to kind of dedicate an afternoon to it I think yeah So enough of us rambling on and a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters this week. So a big hi to Robbie Downing, Mimi Morris, Michael Webb, Sarah, Janine San... Oh, I always get names and then I get them wrong and I feel guilty. Janine Sangendo. Sangendo, I reckon. Sangendo. Sorry, Janine. And Umi Amri. And also to Sam Tomasco, who has returned. So thank you so much, everybody, for your support on Patreon. It absolutely means the world to us. Thank you, guys, particularly at this point in time. Yeah, Yeah. keep the show alive. We're really, really grateful Mm -hmm. for your support. Thank you. Definitely. 
If you would like to support the show through Patreon, then you can go to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast and you'll find three different tiers of support there and all sorts of associated goodies Mm -hmm. uh, with each tier. Check it out. (laughs) This week's case takes us to Deal, a relatively small seaside town in the English county of Kent, located in the south of England. Thought to be a possible location for Julius Caesar's first arrival in Britain, Deal lies on the border of the North Sea and the English Channel, approximately eight miles northeast of Dover. And while Julius Caesar is deep-rooted in Deal's history, so too are the Cameron family, who have lived in the town for generations. Deborah Cameron, the subject of today's episode, was born there in December 1964, the eldest daughter of a large and loving family. As a child, Debbie, as she liked to be called, was popular and fun-loving. She did well at school and went on to train as a nurse, working first at the Kent and Canterbury Hospital before later going on to care for disabled children. Being the eldest child growing up, Debbie learnt the importance of patience and compassion. She was loving and caring and also maternal. She just loved children. And when you look at pictures of Debbie in her late 20s, by then a mother of three young children, she looks like your typical mum, like a mumsy mum, all big woolly jumpers and flowing skirts. Mm. The kind of mum that would have given great hugs and told you that your best is good enough. Reminded me of my own mum. That's a really nice like way to describe her. I definitely agree. Yeah. But Debbie was also described as someone who was resilient and independently minded. She was no shrinking violet. She was capable of asserting herself if the need arose. Debbie met the man who would go on to become her husband in the late 1980s. Andrew Griggs was a local man who was three years older than Debbie and the son of a successful businessman. His father owned Griggs Freezer Centre, a food wholesaler in Deal. Before he met Debbie, Andrew had attempted to follow in his father's footsteps, however without success. His failed business venture had hit him hard and had ended up with him requiring psychiatric treatment. Still, things began to look up when he met Debbie. The pair married in 1990 and in their wedding photos, they look so happy and in love. Well, at least Debbie does. Andrew looks happy on the surface, but he has an unmistakable air of uncertainty about him, like he can't quite believe that this is happening. And I don't know, it could just be me with the benefit of hindsight, reading too much into it, but he does definitely look a little apprehensive and we will put some photos up on social media so you can make up your own mind. I just think maybe he doesn't like having his picture taken. You're absolutely right. Yeah, of course, it could be just that. It is difficult though, isn't it? Because I think, like you said, with the benefit of hindsight, you do see things that perhaps you might not have noticed at the time. Yeah, I think so. Mm. And Debbie obviously didn't notice herself. She looks genuinely happy and in love. Her blonde permed hair and puff sleeve wedding dress defining the decade so perfectly. And it really does. If you Mm -hmm. look at the photo, it just screams 1990s. Mm -hmm. Bring back shell suits. That's what I say. When you get to your perfect sort of body image, I want to see you in a shell suit, please, Oh, Mark. I would love that. <laughs> Done. After they married, Andrew's father, by now looking to retire, offered to sell his wholesale business to Andrew, and he gleefully accepted. With the business bringing a degree of financial stability, the couple decided to start a family. 
Debbie gave birth to their first son in 1992, but she suffered from postnatal depression. Whilst Andrew wasn't overly understanding about this, with the support of her wider family and her GP, Debbie did go on to make a full recovery. She subsequently gave up her job working with disabled children and began to work part-time in the family business. Life was pretty settled for the young family and so they decided to try for another baby. Debbie gave birth to the couple's second son in the mid-90s, but once again she sadly found herself incapacitated by crippling postnatal depression. Knowing support would not be forthcoming from her husband, Debbie immediately went back to her GP who prescribed antidepressants. And they helped immensely, but they only masked the problems for Debbie. Now, I will say I am absolutely no expert in postnatal depression, but I'm guessing it's caused by some kind of change in hormones or maybe that and a combination of a drastic change in circumstances. But for Debbie, whilst those things may have been an issue, there was another problem feeding into her depression. Andrew. It's something that's going to potentially happen anyway, but if you don't have that support, it's going to be completely exacerbated, made 10 times worse. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's probably, you know, it could have been a sort of chemical imbalance in her brain and it could have been a feeling of just being overwhelmed and then a complete lack of support. Um, Yeah, I think it was just a tsunami of shit for her. Mm. So whilst capable of being a good father, Andrew was not overly concerned with childcare or helping around the house. And he wasn't overly concerned with Debbie either. Other than providing financially for his family, Andrew did not contribute to married life. He would go out most nights, leaving Debbie at home with the children, and he worked very long hours. Eventually, the couple's marriage began to deteriorate, something Debbie would confide in with close friends. A few months after giving birth, Debbie made a full recovery from her postnatal depression and she was taken off her antidepressants in March of 1995. Life settled into a predictable routine, and Debbie loved being a mother. So much so that in 1997, she fell pregnant again, giving birth to her third son in the October of that year. Unlike the previous two occasions, Debbie did not suffer with postnatal depression this time. She experienced all of the usual highs and lows of coping with three children under the age of six, but despite her marriage now being in a worse position than ever before, she was actually doing pretty well. Fair play to her. It was difficult anyway, but she sounds like she's smashing it. She she was, and I think maybe she just sort of accepted at this point that that's how it was going to be. She and Andrew leading separate lives, but staying together for the sake of the children. After all, as I said, Debbie loved being a mother and perhaps she thought she could find contentment by channeling all of her energy into her three children. I don't know. Either way, Debbie took her marriage vow seriously and stayed in what had become an increasingly unhappy marriage to Andrew. The late 90s saw an economic boom in the UK. They were good times and the country prospered. Griggs Freezer Centre, the food wholesaler Andrew had bought from his father, was thriving and Andrew felt good about himself. Just like his father, he had proved himself capable of running a successful business. But whilst happy in the world of work, Andrew was less happy about his domestic situation. He had grown bored of Debbie. He no longer found her attractive and he craved attention from the opposite sex. 
Now, whilst details are limited due to the age of the girl in question, it is known that Andrew started a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old in the summer of 1998. A 14-year-old? Yeah. Andrew was described as flirting openly with this girl under Debbie's nose, so Debbie was naturally suspicious that something more was going on behind her back. And she actually ended up questioning both the girl and her husband about what exactly they were up to. Of course, both denied what was going on, the girl because she was being groomed and was the victim of sexual abuse, and Andrew because he didn't want to admit to Debbie that he'd been unfaithful, thus jeopardising his marriage and, crucially, his business. Andrew's resentment towards Debbie only grew from here. He was obviously unhappily married by this point, but he too was trapped. Whilst Debbie's motivations for sticking with the marriage were altruistic, i.e. she thought that she was doing the right thing by providing a stable home life for her boys, Andrew's motives were deep-rooted in his selfish nature. He did not want to lose his home or his business. Notwithstanding the difficult circumstances in which the marriage bumbled on, Debbie did fall pregnant again in early 1999. And for anyone struggling to understand why they were still having sexual relations at this point, because this was a man that she despised, I think it was probably an abusive marriage, one steeped in coercive control. Whilst Andrew never hit Debbie, I do worry about what exactly went on in that marriage towards the end. And I also think that whilst we're seeing it from the outside, Potentially, she did also still feel some sort of loyalty to him as her husband, and she still wanted to have that married relationship. Um, Even though he's quite distant, she potentially still wanted to have that sort of side of things with him. So it doesn't kind of surprise me that they're still having a child and falling pregnant and stuff, And even though all of this is kind of going on. Yeah, and I think it could have just been, you know, Debbie really did love Andrew and perhaps she just thought she really could make it work. Mm, Yeah, that's the other thing as well. You're trying to give your children this stable family home and she's thinking that that's what she's doing. So maybe she's kind of like assuming that he's doing the same. He's staying with me for the children. Yeah. When Debbie told Andrew that she was expecting their fourth child on the 27th of February in 1999, Andrew exploded with rage, accusing Debbie of having an affair and claiming the baby was not his. Mm. I know. He even claimed their youngest son was also not his and the pair engaged in a heated row, culminating in Andrew telling Debbie in no uncertain terms that she was to terminate the pregnancy with immediate effect. Jesus, what a twat. Absolutely. Debbie had finally had enough now. This was the straw that broke the camel's back and enraged at Andrew's salacious accusations, she threw him out of the house. See, I told her she was feisty. I know, I like it. Good for her. And to be fair, Debbie wasn't necessarily sure that this was the end of her marriage. She just knew that things had to change and she desperately needed some space to think. Perhaps she was willing to work at the marriage after all. Maybe Andrew could get help and the two could find a happy ever after. Maybe this was just a bump in the road and things needed to hit rock bottom in order to improve from there. If Debbie was thinking along those lines, she was on hiding to nowhere because Andrew had by now consulted solicitors about commencing divorce proceedings. We don't know the full details, but perhaps what happens next was prompted by him telling Debbie of this. 
On the 1st of March 1999, Debbie entered Griggs' freezer centre and demanded to speak with Andrew. What followed was a heated exchange between the pair, which resulted in Debbie doing something that she didn't think she was capable of. Right there in the food wholesalers, the family business, in front of horrified staff and customers, Debbie bit her husband. She bit him? She bit him. Wow, I mean, that is an animalistic response. So she must have been really, really pushed to behave like that. She absolutely was. And um, there is CCTV footage of this. I've not seen it, but I've heard it described. And it's quite clear that Andrew really goaded Debbie into um, reacting as she did. Well, and obviously by saying this as well, I'm not saying that she was at all in the right because it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. But did she have any previous sort of form with anything like this? Not that we're aware of, no. no. That is such a reaction. What a strong reaction. It is. It really is. And, Mm. you know, naturally, Andrew was left bleeding and humiliated by this. Later that same week, Debbie turned up at the wholesalers once again. She insisted on taking the checkbooks for the business with her, not trusting Andrew with the company's finances. Andrew accused her of turning the boys against him. And in another fit of rage, Debbie lost it again. For the second time in a week, she bit him. And for Andrew, that really was it. He obtained a non-molestation order against Debbie, which is a bit like a sort of injunction barring her from having any contact with him. The type of injunction that is obtained by the victim of domestic abuse against their abuser. So a judge deemed that Andrew was being domestically abused. Mm, I think so as well, like considering she's the one who's bitten him twice. And that's yeah, what's d- been... despite what he said, you know, that yeah. reaction is, is you know, massively um, unacceptable. You have to be honest, it, it mm. is. So in return for Andrew obtaining this injunction against her, Debbie instructed her solicitors to take Andrew for every penny he had. Debbie's solicitors informed Andrew's solicitors of this, advising they wanted the company accounts forensically examined. So the very next day after Andrew had been informed of this, He dropped the injunction and he set about reconciling with Debbie. That just goes to show he's he's got something that he's thinking about hiding, doesn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, he could have been up to illegal behavior with that business, perhaps laundering money, who knows. But he did not want those accounts forensically examined. Mm. He might have been lying to Debbie about how much the business actually made. Um, He just didn't want her having any of that money. Mm -hmm. So to him, it was a case of, well, I'll just get back with her then. So despite everything that had happened between the pair, Debbie did still love her husband and she just did not have the strength to call it a day. So Andrew moved back into the family home and he reassured Debbie that he had never been in any kind of relationship with the underage girl. And he promised that he would never see her again. But Andrew couldn't keep his promise. Over the next two months, he continued to see the girl behind Debbie's back. Furthermore, by now, he had completely cut Debbie out of the business. In the run-up to obtaining the injunction against Debbie, Andrew had closed the business accounts that were in his and Debbie's names and opened accounts in just his name before moving everything over. His parents were complicit in this and even signed a personal guarantee for the overdraft on the new business account. So to me, it seems Andrew had no intention of making this marriage work. He was either biding his time, getting his ducks in a row before instigating divorce proceedings again, or simply carrying on as he had before. 
forsaking his marriage and Debbie's happiness for his own selfish desires. To hell with the consequences. So we're going to fast forward now to Wednesday the 5th of May in 1999. At 11.20pm, Andrew phoned his friend Lloyd Dunkley to cancel a business trip the pair had planned for the early hours of the following morning. I think they used to both go to Billingsgate Fish Market in London every two weeks um, to buy fish for their respective businesses to then sell on. Um, So it was quite a kind of common thing that they would do. It was a a regular trip. Mm -hmm. So he told Lloyd that Debbie had walked out after an argument that she'd driven off in her car and so far she had not returned. Consequently, he said he would have to look after the children and sort things out at home. The next day, still with no sign of Debbie, Andrew got the boys ready and dropped them off at the school gates. When one of the other parents asked where Debbie was, Andrew said that she'd walked out on him before explaining that she was angry with him for falling asleep in his chair. He said she just grabbed her keys and said, see how you cope looking after the children 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Later that day, Andrew called Debbie's parents asking if she was with them. They advised they hadn't seen her and asked what was going on. Andrew simply said that they'd argued and that she'd gone off in a car, but he didn't give any further details, leading them to believe that this had all happened within the last hour or so, and consequently they weren't overly concerned. A short while later, the underage girl Andrew had continued to see behind Debbie's back came round to the family home. When Andrew's mother turned up, she noticed the girl was doing his laundry and preparing to put a load of washing on. Despite it being a white load, Andrew had insisted on his black jeans going in the wash. Andrew's mother left and he headed out shortly afterwards, first to turn a computer off at the wholesalers before going on to a sailing club. He was a keen sailor, which I probably should have mentioned before. Um, And when he was at the sailing club, he checked on the fuel levels of the rescue boat, which was his responsibility to maintain. Upon returning home, Andrew phoned the police at 9.47pm, more than 24 hours after his wife had gone missing. He told them that she'd stormed out of the house after a row, and he hadn't seen or heard of her since. Do you know what? I know that from the fact that we're doing a true crime podcast I can kind of guess where this is gonna go and and I know the case but I kind of get that a little bit because she's an ad like if this is what's really happened she's an adult she's stormed out you might be thinking to yourself do you know what she'll be there when I get home from work or oh she'll probably be home at this point you know she she's gone out overnight but she'll be back for the boys or something but so I, I don't think it's that ridiculous. Do you? What do you think? Cause... I do, yeah. I think as a mother of three young boys, I think it's weird that she's just kind of, obviously, you know, even if she's had a bit of a breakdown, she's just stormed out. And I would still be really concerned. I would be phoning the police to say I'm worried about what she's going to do to herself. Do you know what? That's from that side of things, definitely. And I think as well, he did ring her parents. And that's kind of where you'd expect, you know, her parents or friends it's the it's the sons though that bothers me she's pregnant and she's got three young boys and I kind of get maybe not calling the police but I would expect him to have been ringing around a lot more or driving around trying to find her yeah she was four and a half months pregnant at this point so and you're right yeah he goes out and, and does these chores essentially um while his wife's been missing for 24 hours so it is all a bit weird and i have tried to write this up up to now um to kind of keep you guessing in terms of what actually is going to happen mm. um 
So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be pretty obvious from here on in. I think you're right. So detectives immediately launched an investigation. And on the 12th of May, six days after Debbie had disappeared, her car was found one mile away from the family home, parked on a housing estate. But there was no sign of Debbie. When police searched the car, they found something in the boot that chilled them to the bone. Blood smeared over a metal side panel. When the blood was analysed at the lab, it was found to contain Debbie's DNA. Oh, Christ. Despite this worrying news, police struggled to establish any credible leads and there was an absolute dearth of evidence. No body, no witness, no weapon, no trace of Debbie, except for the smeared blood in the boot of the car. Now, police initially treated Debbie's disappearance as a missing persons inquiry and they appealed to the local community for information but none was forthcoming. And Debbie's parents worked with missing persons charities and Crime Stoppers, and they put up posters around Kent appealing for information about their daughter. They said it was completely out of character for Debbie to go missing and leave her three sons at home, and they talked of their grave concern that she took nothing with her when she left the house, except for her purse and keys, and they said that she'd not used her credit or debit card since. That's so worrying, isn't it? And I know we've talked before Massively. about as an adult, you're allowed to go missing and you're allowed to leave, but that's, yeah, that's not someone who's planned to go at all. No. Police established that the last person to speak to Debbie, other than Andrew, was her brother's partner, Lisa Vickers. Debbie had phoned Lisa at 7.38pm, a couple of hours before Andrew said she'd stormed out of the house, and Lisa told police that Debbie appeared fine and was just phoning to confirm that she would give her a lift the following morning to the mother and toddler group. So Debbie was making future plans. Mm. Disappointingly, the police hit one brick wall after another in the weeks and months that followed. Privately convinced that Debbie was dead and Andrew was responsible, they tried in vain to bring the case to the Crown Prosecution Service. But there just wasn't enough evidence to bring charges. Andrew was arrested in the early stages of the investigation and his house was searched, but nothing was found off the back of it and it just kind of came to nothing essentially. Just months after Debbie's disappearance, Andrew sold the family home and moved out of deal with his three children. They didn't go too far and Debbie's parents continued to see the boys from time to time. But when Andrew upped sticks in 2001, once again, this time taking his parents and three young boys with him to Dorset, he cut off all contact with Debbie's family. That is horrible. What a horrible man. And bloody suspicious too, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. With the police investigation effectively shelved by now, Andrew set about rebuilding his life and a year after moving to Dorset in 2002, he met someone new, a woman also named Debbie. Weird. Whom he married eight years later in 2010. Yes, isn't that bloody weird? Mm -hmm. Really weird. Andrew was honest with Debbie from the outset and he told her all about his wife, that she'd gone missing, that he'd been arrested in connection with her disappearance, that it was all a misunderstanding and that Debbie remained missing to this day. And the new Debbie appreciated Andrew's honesty. She described him as caring, loving and very generous. She said he could be quite old fashioned sometimes, but that she liked that about him. And the couple went on to run a model boat making company and lived a happy, stable life. It seemed with the new Debbie, Andrew had finally found happiness. 
That was until February 2019, when the police came knocking 20 years after his first wife's disappearance. 20 years later, oh my God. 20 years later, Mm, yeah. Wow. In the intervening years, the case had been reopened and the evidence examined once again. Nothing had really changed. Andrew faced the same weight of evidence that prosecutors had initially decided offered no realistic prospect of conviction. But the passage of time helped to undermine Andrew's claim that Debbie had walked out of her own accord. There had been no sign of her on any government system in the two decades since she was last seen at the family home. Similarly, the idea that she could have taken her own life became less plausible over the years, because there was no trace of a body, despite exhaustive international searches and DNA testing of unidentified female corpses. How wonderful as well that they're continuing to investigate this and keep looking for her and investigating the case. And this wasn't a breakthrough in DNA or advances Mm -hmm. in DNA science. This was purely about them just deciding to relook at it. And it was actually a retired detective that was brought back into the force and told by the chief inspector, look, go and re-examine this as if it had happened now. So in the context of where we're at right now in society. um, So, you know, taking into account things like domestic abuse and the understanding of coercive control, etc. So just one guy with probably a very small team looked into this and, um, and yeah, kind of managed to get it past the CPS and, and to prosecution. Wow. So yeah, it did go to trial. Andrew was arrested on suspicion of Debbie's murder. Um, he was charged and then bailed whilst he awaited his trial, which began in October of 2019. So on the first day of Andrew's trial, Duncan Atkinson QC, opening for the prosecution, said, The prosecution case is that Debbie Griggs did not just up and leave her husband and children in the middle of the night, never to be seen or heard of again. She was a devoted mother who would not have just abandoned her children. He said Andrew and Debbie's marriage had been under strain at the time of Debbie's disappearance, owing in no small part to Debbie's suspicions that Andrew had been having an affair with an underage girl. During the trial, Debbie's friend Dorothy Smith told the jury, I know 110% she would not have walked out on her children. She said she was shocked when Andrew phoned her on the 6th of May and said that his wife had left the family home and not returned. And she went on to say, I disputed that she would ever do that. The love for her children was palpable. Asked how Andrew acted, she said, The thing that really stood out for me was the calmness. There was no sense of worry. It was like he had phoned me to ask if I'd remembered to put the milk on the shopping list. No emotion. Neighbour Geraldine Bristow said Andrew told her on the 6th of May that his wife had said that she was going away for a few days to see how he coped with the children alone. Further recollecting her exchange with Andrew, she said he mentioned how Debbie's whole personality had changed in recent months. That she had had no patience and was very angry at times with the children that it had been stressful for both of them and that she had repeatedly threatened to walk out and on more than one occasion had even told the children, I might as well go and kill myself. That is a horrible thing to to say that she'd been saying. To destroy her character, yeah. that's horrific. Andrew went on to tell this neighbour that his wife was depressed and had been acting like a mad woman, adding that she had not been taking her pills. But Debbie had not been taking a pill since 1995 when a GP had stopped prescribing them owing to the fact that her mental health had improved considerably. She didn't need the pills anymore. This is the thing, it was postnatal depression 
And yeah. like he's just clutching at something that he's remembered her mention. It shows how little he's thought about her or listened to her. Yeah, I think he's just looking at it as an excuse to mm-hmm. kind of say that she wasn't of sound mind and was therefore capable of running out of the family home and leaving the three kids that she loved so dearly. So Debbie's GP told the jury that she had displayed none of the signs or symptoms of depression in the weeks before her disappearance. So that is pretty much conclusive mm-hmm. that she wasn't depressed. Yeah. Under cross-examination, in an attempt to destroy his wife's character further, Andrew said Debbie had been slightly heavy-handed with their three sons, adding, she was very aggressive with them if they were naughty. He said he didn't follow her strict approach to discipline because he was a bit of a softy. Asked why he did not pursue a divorce, Andrew said, I didn't want to because I still love Debbie and I love the children and I just didn't want to lose them. Oh, he's just such a douche, isn't he? He is, but in an affidavit Debbie wrote in 1999 in response to Andrew's pursuance of divorce, she said that he does not let me go out of the house. His needs come first. He tells me I'm sick and mad in the head. And she went on to say, during the course of our marriage, my husband was bombastic and bullying. He has threatened to sort me out. I took that to mean that he would do me harm or will arrange for someone else to do me harm. So these protestations of his love for his wife are just complete bollocks. And I think now that we do have that, um, I can't remember what the correct term is, but the domestic violence. Coercive control. Coercive control, that's it. This is clearly coercive control. And I feel really bad for her that that wasn't a law at this time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It would have been treated very differently now, I think. And, you know, what was quite sad was that when Andrew took out the molestation order against Debbie, one, that he was able to do that, but two, that, that you know, he was being deemed a victim of domestic abuse when actually I'm sure, whilst Debbie shouldn't have bit him, I'm sure that she was most definitely the victim in that household. A recording of a police interview with Andrew was played to the court whereby he claimed his wife had previously gone a walkabout in the middle of the night and he said that that had happened between 30 and 40 times. But Duncan Atkinson QC said Andrew would not mention this before she went missing, claiming that he was seeking to create an impression after she had gone missing that this was something she did a lot, that it wasn't necessarily out of character for Debbie. Atkinson asked Andrew if he had buried his wife's body or disposed of her at sea. And Andrew dismissed this, saying, I've done absolutely nothing with her. Atkinson then charged Andrew, saying, she did not leave that house under her own power. She left that house after you killed her. Atkinson said that it was not without significance that Andrew was reported to have spoken about his wife in the past tense, just a week after he claimed she'd walked out on the family. The manager of a dental practice phoned Andrew on the 17th of May and asked for his wife's date of birth. Atkinson said Andrew's reply left the manager with a cold feeling because he replied in the following way. Her date of birth was the 10th of December 1964. That is cold. It is, that's chilling. In summing up their case, the prosecution outlined how Debbie would have needed ongoing medical help in relation to her pregnancy. So don't forget, she was four and a half months pregnant when she went missing. Um, and also she would have given birth to that child at some point. But there was no record of her ever having sought help or turning up at a hospital. Furthermore, her passport and bank cards had still not been used since her disappearance. And the prosecution urged the jury to accept that Debbie was dead. And so, after a trial lasting four weeks, Andrew was found guilty. 
Speaking directly to Andrew in his sentencing remarks, Mr Justice Spencer said, You have lied to the enormous distress of Debbie's family. They have always known that Debbie would never have left the children in this way. It is a huge sadness that Debbie's mother did not live to see you brought to justice for the murder of her daughter. She died in January 2019, just a few weeks before the correct decision was finally and belatedly made to charge you with Debbie's murder. Her father, her brothers and her sister have shown great dignity and restraint throughout the trial. No one could fail to be moved by her father's statement read in court this morning describing the impact of Debbie's disappearance on the whole family. It was her mother who would constantly strive to keep Debbie's name alive, trying each year on the anniversary of her disappearance to persuade the local media to publish her picture and make a fresh appeal for information about her. And Justice Spencer went on to speculate about exactly what had happened on the night Debbie vanished. He said, you may well have come to the conclusion sometime before that Wednesday night that you wanted to be rid of your wife once and for all. I shall return to the evidence of Peter Monks, a business contact, to whom you sounded off very angrily about Debbie wanting a half share of everything, and to whom you expressed your wish to see your wife dead. The overwhelming likelihood in my judgment is that you had some final confrontation with Debbie in the house that night, probably because she had discovered that you were still seeing that young girl behind her back and that despite the reconciliation, she realised that you had taken steps to cut her out of the business. Only you know what took place that night in that house. Only you know how you killed her. He went on to say, you somehow disposed of her body in the early hours of the morning. I strongly suspect that you dumped her body at sea. As an experienced sailor and former deep sea fisherman, you knew that stretch of the coast like the back of your hand. It would not have been difficult to weigh her body down so that it sank without a trace. At 4am the next morning, a neighbour across the road saw Debbie's car leaving the driveway of your home. In all probability, that was the second time you had left and driven off from the house that night in Debbie's car. Another neighbour had seen Debbie's white Peugeot reversing out of the drive at 2am, one night around the time of her disappearance. It could not have been a night later than Wednesday the 5th of May, nor is there any reason why Debbie or anyone else would have been reversing her Peugeot out of the driveway on any earlier night. You would have known about it. This strongly suggests that the first trip you made in the early hours of Thursday the 6th of May was to dispose of Debbie's body, leaving the three children at home alone. Having returned home two hours or so later, you then made a second trip to dump the car far enough away from the home not to be discovered too soon, but close enough so that you could walk back home within 15 minutes. The shrubbery where you left the car was a residential road that you knew well from deliveries that you'd made during the course of your work. Your judgment proved right. It was an ideal choice. It was nearly a week before Debbie's car was discovered by the police. Despite your caution in removing the carpet or the lining in the boot, which probably bore some trace of Debbie's blood, you failed to notice a telltale smear of blood on the interior side panel of the boot. And this was a crucial piece of circumstantial evidence. I think they've summed that up so perfectly as well. Why would she have driven her car off? And people do notice things like that. So he's just made so many little mistakes. 
And yeah, I think yeah. I think in times where you're not 100 percent sure what's happened, you need to just go with the most common sense approach mm-hmm. because normally it's the right approach. So was somebody else randomly moving Debbie's car around at two in the morning on another night? No, no. it was obviously Andrew. Mm-hmm. So Andrew was sentenced to 20 years in prison and he's currently there as you're listening to this. Which, again, I have totally stolen from Adam at the UK True Crime podcast. I was going to say. Yeah, he always says it, but I love it when he says it because it always gets me thinking. Yeah, it really and does. I can, I can quite clearly picture the perpetrator sat in their cell, um, you know, contemplating their crime. Well, that's what I like to think. They're probably sat on the toilet having a big shit or something. Oh, God. <laughs> Speaking after Andrew was sentenced, Detective Chief Inspector Kay Braybrook said he had proven himself to be a callous and manipulative individual who has gone to great lengths to destroy his wife's reputation. She said for 20 years he has heartlessly carried on with his life while Debbie's family and friends have struggled to come to terms with their loss and having never had the chance to bury her body and say their proper goodbyes. Only Andrew knows how he killed Debbie and what he did with her body, and I appeal to him to have the courage to speak up and enable those who continue to grieve her loss to have some sort of closure. Speaking outside court, Debbie's brother Derek Cameron said, 20 years, this is how long it has taken for this to come to justice. 20 years of anguish, torment and heartache. 20 years of hurt, pain, despair and emotional turmoil. 20 years without a daughter, sister, grandchildren and nephews. 20 years of lost communication and three young boys without their mother. Finally, 20 years have come to a conclusion. We can at last put this to bed. This is now closure and our vindication is now prevalent. We will never forget Debbie who was an amazing daughter, a remarkable sister, an extraordinary, committed, compassionate person, not only to her friends, but to everyone. She was a passionate, doting mother with unequivocal love for her children who meant the absolute world to her. She will be forever in our thoughts. And he finished by saying, this is an immense day, a long time coming. For that, we would like to thank the CPS for reinvestigating and ultimately charging him. Our sincere gratitude goes to the police for bringing him to justice. We were truly touched by the excellent testaments concerning Debbie's character from her friends. For Debbie, we are oh so sorry that it has taken so long. And for Mum, if you're listening, we actually finally got him. God, that is so sad, isn't, isn't that it? so oh, powerful? And I wow. watched him, I actually watched Debbie's brother Derek give that statement and mm-hmm. read that outside court. And, you know, he does it brilliantly. You know, it's obviously full of emotion, mm-hmm. but he, he really does Debbie justice. Well done to him for being able to do that as well. Yeah, and I I pretty much did want to end there because that, you know, keeps Debbie's memory alive. But Debbie's three sons have stuck by their dad. They firmly believe their mother is still alive and they've even set up a Find Our Mum page on Facebook, which is still active. And on it, they say, This page has been launched for the sole purpose of finding our mum, Debbie Elizabeth Griggs, nay Cameron, who we believe was not murdered by our father, but is still alive. 
It has not been set up to cause upset or distress. Oh my God, that's just so sad that he is allowing his children to carry on like this. That Absolutely. makes me feel so bad for those poor boys. I do. And I've looked at the page and it's totally genuine. Mm. Um, the page is still up there. Um, but I think, you know, Debbie's sister, a woman called Wendy Rowlinson, sums it up perfectly um, when she said in a newspaper interview, I think their father is cruel to keep them in this state of delusion. He should think of those boys and tell them the truth. This is so frustrating because, yes, I kind of get that. And at least they've managed to have their lives for 20 years with their dad as well. But one day they are going to find out and they're just going to look back on their entire lives. Yeah. In their latest Facebook post addressed directly to their mother, they write, We have no reason to disbelieve dad and we don't know why you chose to leave us. But if you loved us as much as everyone says you did, you must have had good reason. One of us saw you watching us soon after we moved, so we know you care. Please just let us know that you're okay. Oh, that's so Which is, isn't that haunting though? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they're alluding to the fact that sometime later, sometime after she disappeared, um, one of the boys felt like they saw her watching over them. And Mm. that, that does make me sad because, you know, I I really don't think that was the case. I think that she is dead. And I think that, uh, you know, Andrew did kill her, but maybe she was there in spirit in the form of a ghost looking over them. Like that sort of kind of comfort for them. Yeah. And there is a tiny, tiny part of me that wonders, um, in the absence of any body and and any real hard evidence, maybe she did just walk out. Maybe she is just missing. So thank you for listening, guys. Do check us out on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Keep the show alive. And don't forget to check out our sponsors. So we've got Babbel, so you can head to babbel.co.uk. And we also have Noom, so noom.com forward slash red. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. Bye. Bye.